Hi friends, this is episode 71 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, thanks so much for coming back for session two of our series, God's Blueprint, which is a an incredible journey through the book of Ephesians. And in session two, we're going to go through the second half of chapter one. And the topic is all about how do you love? And I know that seems like a fairly simple question, but you'll see through this conversation, it's it's really a complex answer. Now, today you're going to hear from one of my best friends, Richard Blum Johnston. He is the head elder of Loma Linda University Church, and he filled in for me today because... I had no idea whether I was going to make it back from a broadcaster's convention in time. The convention was in Orlando, Florida. I was flying back on Friday, and with all the craziness that's happening with flights nowadays, I just could not guarantee that I was going to be back. So I asked him, and he graciously said yes. So I'm excited. You get to hear from another voice, another viewpoint, and I know you're going to be blessed as we take one more step through God's blueprint. And during this conversation, there's going to become a funny point. Uh, Someone's going to make a comment, but before he makes a comment, you're going to hear a lot of laughter. And that laughter is because I got to be in the audience and I got to hold up a comment card and make a comment during it. I know you're going to be blessed. I was incredibly blessed. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Bible Lab. Most of the people in this room just pretend to love everybody. Okay. This one's actually mostly no's and yeses. You notice how this question was left for me. All right, so we're going to find out what that means. Why does he have that there? We're going to get into that in a minute. Okay, hope is not an expression of absolute expectation. What do you, what, we have some answers to that. Kind of split here, mostly yes, actually. Anybody want to comment on that for me? Hope is not an expression of absolute expectation. What does absolute expectation mean to us as we sit here right now? Anybody? Well, to me, when I first read it, absolute expectation, I, I honestly, I really wasn't sure what to make of it, you know? Is it... Uh, I expect something no matter what? Or is it that something is going to be expected that's going to turn out? And when I read through this passage and I read this in in Roy's handout, I thought I couldn't understand why Paul had that there, what that really meant. So further study and it's gonna show us. The establishment of religious organizations has made the world a more loving place. Wow, we could spend the whole time on that. 95% no's. Okay. Few yeses and two or three maybes. I think that's an awesome yes, no, and maybe question. I possess the same power that that was used by God to raise Jesus from the dead. This was a revolutionary question for me. And when Roy went over it with me and we talked through it and I read about it, mostly yeses. I'm shocked. Because I was like, what are you, serious, Roy? I have the same power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead? 
Jesus is incomplete without us. Ah, oh, nice. 99% yes. Very good. All right, so let's take our, our passage. Well, before we do that, we're going to go into our dig deeper part here. And we're going to look at a comment that was made by uh, Jonathan Swift. It says, We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. How do you guys feel about that? Is that not, is that not true? You know, we, we have a lot of religion. We feel we're Christians. But we are, are very uh, comfortable having our prejudices at times towards people's opinions or people's views. You know, this is evident in, in all parts of the world. We look at the leaders of our country, for goodness sake. You know, they are supposed to get along and they can't stand each other. Okay? We look at, uh, break it down at the things closer to home. Let's break it down into church. Okay? We come to, to church and we love everybody. But then we, at the same time, there's times where we feel resistance or we feel pressure or we feel pushback on certain people for certain ideas they have or certain things they did, right? Are we going to be honest with that? What do you guys think? I'll just break the ice this morning by saying that not one of us, I think, is capable of any pure emotion. We always mix up other things with a secret or hidden desire for power or a political agenda so that if, if we could really love and really love the Lord, that would be wonderful. But we've seen it happen in people who gain power, but it's the same in all of us. We want it to be more than just a hope. We want to stand out some. We, something, we want something extra from it, I think. Very good. I think that's a very good answer. Okay, we all, oh, another comment, yes. Yeah, I think to me, what is so disappointing, and, and I'm not the best Christian perhaps, but when we have Christians, even within our own church, fighting over our political beliefs or non-beliefs, and what is so very interesting is when it says conservative Christians and the hatred they have. And that's an oxymoron. How can, be, how can we be a conservative Christian and have such a hatred for, you know, for, 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 the, for the other party, whichever party it is, you know, right or left? And they demonize you if you belong to one party or the other party. That, that's, you know, even families nowadays are, are apart, you know, because of that, you know, that, that you can't discuss anything today. But, but the thing that strikes the most pain in my heart is when the newscaster says conservative Christians, you know, God-believing Christians, that it should not be. Very good. That's, that's exactly what I was trying to come to, is, is we have uh, positions ourselves that we call ourselves Christians, that we call ourselves loving of people around us and everybody. And yet at the same time, we have attitudes and ideas that we're willing to literally drive us to the point where people perceive it as a hate for another side or another opinion. 
And God's love dissolves that. He has no political cares. He has no monetary cares. He cares about each of us and the other person. Sir? One of the things that I've noticed in the last few years is something I'll call the uh, you're not from around here syndrome. <laughs> and, and one thing that highlighted it to me was uh, one day I was uh, at work, I was with uh, an engineer who had uh, traveled to our company in Tucson from Wales and he was telling about, talking with some of the other uh, engineers and, and staff about his experience just growing up in a small town in Wales and trying to go and date someone three villages away from his village and getting pushback from his family and friends in his own village saying, why do you have to go three villages over <laughs> to find a nice young lady? Aren't the ones here in our own village good enough for you? Yeah. <laughs> and it, a light bulb kind of went on in my brain and and it's, I've thought ever since, if people from one small village in Wales kind of look down their nose at somebody three villages over in Wales, what hope is there for any of us to get along with each other? Wow. Okay, one more comment, then we're going to read our text. Jack. A comment about hope. Uh, uh, somewhere I have written in my Bible that I heard from someplace else, Hope is an expectation, a precursor to faith. Hope is a precursor to faith. Okay, we're going to come back to that. All right, so let's read our passage for today, okay? So uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. This is building off of last week's passage, okay? For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for our God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and everywhere, every way. Let's take that down. What, not what we're going to do is take this into verse by verse. Okay, so if we look at our um, study guide, we have a community of love. Verse 15. Our surface Christianity arms us with what we think <coughs> are proper prejudices and a rationale for criticizing those who fall short, keeping that at arm's length, and so with the not so with the Ephesians. This was the way of the word. This is why the word love here is agape, okay? A thoughtful, volitional, purposeful love that wills to love even the unloving, the very love of God himself, 
Okay, so we're kind of talking about that already here our, uh, in our, on our talk. The Ephesians didn't have, as this gentleman pointed out, they didn't have their political Ephesional positions and, and arguments, and they weren't criticizing each other for their beliefs in that way. The Ephesians were a, a group of people that had come to develop a love of each other in a godly way, okay? Uh, an acceptance of each other for who they were, for their strengths, for their weaknesses, and for the fact that it was part of their relationship with God to be able to love you, okay? So that is why this is saying it's the very love of God himself and uh, the agape. So for me, it was confusing is when we have an agape feast, a love feast, okay? I don't, I've always wondered, man, why do we call it an agape feast? I mean, it's a love feast. I understand that. But to me, you know, God's love is not the same as me feeling good about you tonight and feeding you. You know, to me, God's love is something that is going to go beyond this, this dinner. It's something that I'm going to treat you with and treat you with and you with that I don't know always, right? So I've always wondered about this agape feast thing. Um, I've never, I guess I've just never quite understood it. Anybody else ever questioned that or had a comment about that? I, I was going to say, Richard, from the last uh, segment that we were just talking about, can you blame us that we don't love each other uh, naturally? Can you blame us that we're haters? Because as we grow up from Adam to now, all the characteristics that we emulate are from flawed relationships. Our parents who brought us up, they were flawed. Their parents were flawed. Our great-grandparents were flawed. And you continue this down and it's not natural the natural man doesn't have a tendency to actually love one another. But what, what's weird that happened is something happened different in Ephesians. And Paul now starts to talk about what is it that starts to make people change? Because if you take a hater like me and you bring them to church, I become a religious hater. That's all that happens. There's something different that happens and I, I think this, this lesson study actually um, uh, will start to open up what that is, but it's not natural for us to be lovers. Yes, and, and therein lies the point of God's love, because you know, God's love is natural. But we as sinners, we as, as, as average human beings, have to, have to strive to achieve God's love. We have to strive to get ourselves to God's love. Oh, comment here in the front. <laughs> I'm new here, so I hope what I say is appropriate. <laughs> I was just having a conversation yesterday with uh, the, the president of a, of a Christian broadcasting network, and she was talking about this conversation, a, a gentleman who had submitted content to be on their channel, but then retracted it. Um, and said, I, I don't like what your channel is about. He mm. obviously didn't understand this channel, I would say, but I don't, I don't have release to say what channel it is, who I was talking to. Um, and he, his comment was, I'm not into this God thing. And so she was going to let it go, but she 
stopped being a believer. Uh, it, uh, she stopped herself because she was a believer. She said, I need to have this conversation with this gentleman. So she called him on the phone, left a message. He didn't pick up. But because of her message, he called back because she was very open and said, I'd like to have a conversation with you. She goes on, to, to make it short, she goes on to talk about how he was attacking her position and just continually uh, attacking. And it led to a conversation of her and I talking about how today's society, people think that if they're able to attack a position that that uh, states that they themselves have a position, which is not true. No. Uh, if you're anti something, it does not mean you have a position. It just means you're against someone else's position. And so we had a conversation about, you know, some of the uh, inter interchanges we're having with people today where I found it necessary in these times when someone is attacking, well, you don't believe in science because you're a Christian and you don't believe in this and you and all of these assumptions that people are making just like the gentleman said before these people are making assumptions as to what does it mean to be a conservative christian and so we had a conversation about you know because society today thinks that being anti something is a position it really is a great opportunity for us to in a non-defensive way just say so Great, I understand you're against my position. Tell me about your position. What do you stand for? Because you may convince me of your position, so tell me, what's your position? Because it may be quite compelling. And what I'm finding in these conversations, and this is a blanket statement, but what I'm finding is people don't know how to respond to that. Because our society today is all about who you're against. We'll elect people because they're not somebody else. Mm -hmm is where mm -hmm. we are right now. Not because policies will be better or because they have a way of doing something in, a, in an improved manner. Yeah. And that's why we find ourselves in this turmoil of one side versus the other because we think being against something is a position. Yeah. So I think as Christians, I think it's, uh, this is a vital conversation for us to have to say in God's blueprint, what did he say you are? What do you stand for? What is your position in God's eyes and your position to reach out in love, agape, to the community around you? Yeah, great. Liked, um, I liked that this stated that they made a, a decision to love. Mm -hmm. um, because love is actually something you have to decide to do. Mm -hmm. Hate is easy, it's natural, it's what we do. So being suspicious of things, especially in, you know, as we experience life, that's just a natural part of our, who we are. Mm -hmm. But loving isn't natural. It's something we have to choose to do. And that's what the Ephesians had done. They had chosen to love each other right. with all their flaws, with all their differences, and we as Christians tend to be afraid to experience and include things that are different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the big topic these days is equality or equity, actually, you know, and diversity. That's a huge, especially at my company right now, a huge conversation we're having. And we learn that we're afraid to go outside our comfort zone, afraid to go around people we're not familiar with, something that's different. It's the same thing with love. We're afraid of things we don't understand. And the more we allow ourselves to be immersed in things we don't understand or experience things we don't understand, 
the more we will learn to love those things naturally. But we have to make the conscious decision to do so. Absolutely. Very good. Thank you. See, I told you just on this one Jonathan Swift sentence, we could spend the whole time here. Okay. Let me get one more comment here and then we're going to go on. Well, I, I, I maybe ag agree with the young lady who just spoke, but I can choose to do that every day. I can choose to love somebody. It's not going to happen if I don't have God in my life and I continually come to him and ask him to help me be that way. Absolutely. There's no way I can do it on myself. Absolutely. So it's a constant battle. You have to stay in touch, keep in touch with your friends so that you can be that way. And the more that he comes into your life, the easier it is to do that. But if you don't have him there, it's never going to happen. Right, and I'm going to add to that. Before we stay in touch with our friends, the real way we are that way is we have to stay in touch with God. That's the friend I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that has to be the, the footer of everything that we think we are building in our life. So let's move on here. We're going to move on. I'll come. Okay, go ahead. We confuse love with the feeling that we get when we feel affection for someone. Um, I have... A sister with whom I was fairly close she's now in dementia and she is a different person um, I read a book by C.S. Lewis mere Christianity and in one place he says that if we want to love people we should do something loving the more we do for people whether we have the the emotion of affection or not the more we will appreciate them. I think new mothers are sometimes afraid of their babies, but the more they do for that baby, the better they love them. Do not wait for the emotion, because it may not ever come, but you can still be loving in your action. Mm, very nice, and I think that's true. I think what we're talking about here is, it, obviously there's always emotion involved, but this is not an emotional love, this form of love for others. You know, this God's form of love for others. Sure, God feels emotion towards us, but this form of love is a, is a love of our inner being in no matter what circumstance and no matter what we have done. So, uh, Raul. I kind of disagree with some folks here that said that um, I decide to, or I, I choose to love. Sorry, I, I, for me that is difficult. And, and well, I do it. But it, it doesn't last. It won't last. Because when uh, somebody comes across my way, hey, um, I choose other things sometimes. <laughs> um, why are you laughing? Everybody does that. No, because you? you're right. Yeah. So I have a, a different view. Uh, what I choose instead is not to love, but I choose to understand God and Jesus. I choose to understand what, what, is Jesus, what does Jesus want me to do mm -hmm. or to think. And, and then I remember that he loved unconditionally. And he also told me that if I am connected like the, vine, the branches to the vine, I would produce good fruits. And some of those good fruits of the Holy Spirit include love. So I, tr I, I, I try to put the better foundation instead of me 
my will to love, I, I want to be with the mind of Jesus and then love will be natural for me. Very nice. Thank you, Rob. So here Paul had said that he had heard how the Ephesians had this faith and this love for God and, and God's people, each other. And in uh, verse 16, he moves on and he says, because of this, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul prayed constantly for, for a lot of people, but the Ephesians, it was a, a very meaningful thing to him. And when you look at Paul's prayers and, and some of the information that I uh, went through that Pastor Roy had given me and further into it, it, it talked about that the Paul's prayers, ones we have written, ones we know about, uh, they were never a prayer like probably most of us pray. They were never a prayer asking for, you know, this to happen for me, asking for monetary things or asking for things to be better. His prayers were, were solely and digestively about the Ephesians, about their relationship with God. He was truly uh, acting as an intercessory to want their connection with God to be stronger, to want to build on the fact that they had uh, had this love for each other and where that was coming from. And I thought, I found that very interesting because I thought to myself, okay, you know, as I go through the week and I have my prayer sessions, I'm going to start trying to have prayers where it's completely not about me. And I've been doing that this week and, and it's interesting because, you know, just to be open and honest, I've had a couple of prayers where I sat there for a minute and thought, wow, I should be doing this more often, you know, when I, when I leave me and what I think I need or what I think I hope happens out of it, and I just start praying for other people solely. It felt good, but there was holes in my prayer. And that told me something about maybe me and my relationship with God. So, <clears throat> verse 17, I keep asking that during his prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is where we start getting into kind of the meat of our conversation, okay? Spirit of wisdom and revelation, okay? The spirit of wisdom. What this is talking about here is most likely meaning is that this, he is using the word spirit to mean an attitude of disposition, a mindset, as we would <coughs> say. The cheer, as we would say, the cheerleaders were trying to help the student body to have a spirit of enthusiasm. Jesus used spirit in this fashion in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning blessed are those who have an attitude of humility. Okay, so that's what the word spirit here is referring to. And we look at the word wisdom. Wisdom is insight into true, <clears throat> the true nature of things. The wisdom is not the cause and effect wisdom that the world can know. Rather, it is the wisdom that stands for knowledge and understanding of things as they truly are. For example, as we see in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then revelation. Okay, what, what, how is revelation used here? Revelation is the context, <coughs> in this context, is a parallel idea to wisdom. It, is no, it has nothing to do with the giving of a new revelation on the same level as the Bible. Instead, it has to do with the grasping of understanding of the truth of Scripture. Revelation, apocalypse means to reveal, to unfold, or to unveil, to make new. The desire <coughs> is that we might have a mindset of fearing God, as, so as to have understanding of an unfolding of the truth. 
we might paraphrase it, I pray that your mind and your heart may be turned to receive the truth about God. In summary, Paul says that we might be given capacity for spiritual discernment. So when we look at those words that way, it reads different, right? You know, it, to, to me, it read completely different, but it, it made sense. It helped me understand, you know, where, where Paul was trying to lead the Ephesians with his prayer and also how the Ephesians uh, prayed and, and what they, their mindset was when they talk about this love for each other, okay? Their humility and their attitude was open to God and to each other. And this is what helped fulfill them. Okay, comment? So um, I was kind of just thinking a little bit about when we're talking about unconditional love. I find it strange that we're often measuring our, our own capacity to do that first, when unconditional love is something that comes from God. It's, it's a little bit weird because we, we all are familiar with the fact that we don't love people unconditionally. And so if we continue to say, like, oh, I want to love people unconditionally, and we start with ourselves, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I think a lot of that has to come with is just when we look at ourselves and we do see that hatred in us, I think we should probably pay more attention to that because when we do go to God who is the source of unconditional love, we understand that despite that, like, flaws that we see in ourselves, we are still loved by someone else. And I think is when we come to reconcile that, when we look at somebody else who is different from us, we do see that those, those same qualities that we also share. Like, this is a flawed person, but I know that I'm also flawed. Yeah. And God loved me, so therefore I can love them. Nice. Very good. Very good. So it's... Oh, Randy, go ahead. Oh, no. Loved it. Oh, loved it. Got it. Okay. No, that was a very good comment. I appreciate that. Oh, sorry. Back here, the blue mic. Um, I, I, I come back to this concept of love, and when I hear this idea that we're kind of, um, our default is not to love, I, I, I disagree with that. I disagree with the concept that we're haters, not lovers. I believe that we are God, created in the image of God, and I can't in any way in the fiber of my being think that God would have created me to default to hate, that he would have... He designed us to love. It's in our DNA. It's, it's, it's how he knows we will be happy. And the proof in the pudding for me is, as selfish as I can be, the few times where I do something selfless and loving, I've never been happier. And it always is true. I never have ever done something selfless and walked away not feeling happier. So I just, the design, I believe we are designed to love. Amen. Amen. And, and, and I agree with that. And I think that is why what brings that out of us is uh, fostering and, and putting effort into that relationship with God to, to become more like him. Because then it, it makes that more our predominant uh, expression as opposed to uh, subletting to opinions and hatred and other things. When we practice love over and over again, I believe that it's like creating a new habit. We decide that we are going to create this new habit, and therefore, when we choose to love, then we are going to continue to choose to love even more. And uh, I had a really good personal example with my older brother. 
who was very bright, and he liked to let you know it. And um, he was kind of a genius, and uh, he knew everything about everything, and he did, and he was very bright. And um, for, for example, um, I went on a lifestyle change and uh, decided to get my life in order and my body in order and all this kind of stuff. And after uh, losing 80 pounds, he came to me one day and he said, you know, I really have this good weight loss program. <laughs> now, did he notice that I'd lost 80 pounds? I guess so. And so finally I told him, um, you know, uh, I've kind of lost some weight here and I think I kind of know how to do it. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I had to come to the place with my brother where I had to separate what he did from the fact that he was my brother and one of God's children. So I had to choose to love him as my brother and one of God's children and separate away from that his absolutely annoying, irritating, frustrating <laughs> habits that he had in talking to me. And I was 14 years younger than him, so he had everything to say. Mm. Okay. So we look at the spirit of wisdom and the revelation, okay? And Paul is wanting the Ephesians to have a better awareness of this so that they will know God better, okay? Well, let's look at that, to know him better. Paul wants his beloved Ephesians, who are so full of faith <coughs> and love, to go deeper and deeper into their knowledge of Christ. The regular Greek word for the personal knowing is gnos, gnosis. But here, the word is intensified with the preposition epi. Paul is asking for an epignosis, a really deep, full knowledge, a thorough knowledge of love. Knowing Christ is one of the New Testament's ways of describing saving faith, Jesus himself said uh, in his highly priest prayer. Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Those who knew Christ have eternal life. Those who do not, do not have eternal life. So what does this knowing Christ involve? It involves knowing more than the facts about Christ. Okay? I might know a lot about President Bush. I know where he went to school, I know what sports he likes to play, I know some of his chronological history, and I know some of his strengths and weaknesses. But do I know President Bush? No, not, I don't really know this individual. I don't have a knowing, I don't have an understanding of who he is and what makes him tick and enough of, about him to make me feel an intimate caring about him, right? The fact is that <clears throat> the facts are helpful, but they are not enough. Knowing Christ involves more than a passing acquaintance. To truly know another, there must be a mutual knowledge and a mutual exchange, and knowing Christ goes even beyond this. The word know here has an Old Testament heritage behind it, in which the word yada often expressed sexual intimacy. Adam and Eve, his wife, and they conceived and born Cain. It is the spiritual parallel of this that Jesus has in mind in describing those who have eternal life. Okay, so knowing, when this says that they might know him better, it's, it's a much deeper meaning. Um, I think when I first really became aware of what this meant is we, we go back a couple years and, and I led the lab for 
uh, Roy one day and we were talking about Psalms 4610 and uh, be still and know that I am God and I spent a lot of time that's always been my favorite Bible text and I took it at face value but I spent a lot of time trying to understand that text before we came to the lab and understand what this this know that I am God meant and what I learned was he wanted them, you know, be aware. You, you know that I am God. But how is it that you know I am God? It is you're acknowledging your relationship with me. Okay? It's a deep relationship that uh, identifies for you that you are connected to. Okay? So like our gentleman talked about, we, we are not creatures of hate. We are creatures of love. That is, that is how we are born. That is how, what is innate to us. We default to hate because it surrounds us and it's easy and sometimes it's popular, right? But we are truly creatures of love. And if the more we know God, the more that that is the space that we are going to exist in, a loving space, a space where we relate to others with the same form of care and respect and love that we relate to God with. And that's what I get out of this. Knowing is not passing, you know, how, how am I going to, if, if I have these facts about President Bush, how am I going to get to know him better? I'm going to spend time with him, right? We're going to sit, we're going to talk, we're going to spend lots of time, lots of time talking, beginning to know each other, learning each other's true history, what makes each other tick inside out, we're going to do things together. I'm not going to go skeet shooting with him, but, uh, you know, we're going to spend time together. And um, that is where the relationship is. That is what the knowing is. It's developing a portion of my life that is committed solely to the understanding of God. Actually developing all of my life. So that I am spending daily time, all the time, with God in mind. With communion with Him so that I understand what He wants of me. I understand what He needs of me. And I then function in a form of love towards others that becomes very easy I don't have to as Raul said think about oh I think I'll be loving to this person how I treat everybody is loving when I get to that place with God where he is my main connection question um, not a question but I really quite uh, well <laughs> I really question whether we are innately loving people. I think God made us that way, but when sin entered, that changed our innate ability, I think, to be loving. Not that, well, anyway, I, I question whether we are innately loving. But a second thing I'd like to say is I hope that we're going to be able to get to the number five on our yes, no, and maybe list because I really have a question about that. If Jesus is incomplete without us, when this world ends, this age ends, and, and heaven comes, and the new earth comes, some of us, uh, some, uh, none of us, uh, some others aren't going to be there. Um, we'll is be. he? forever going to be incomplete Jesus himself and if so how is that a heavenly thing very good we're going to get there so let's keep moving forward okay so 
Um, so now we have we have the spirit of wisdom uh, and the revelation, and we have you know to help us know God better. Now these things are important as we move down towards answering this question. This kind of sets everything up. I was telling Roy before we started. I found it very interesting how. Paul thinks or writes here because it's like things so far down in these texts refer back to the, the things he sets up for these, these people when he's writing these letters to them. Um, okay, so what might the hope that Paul wants them to have a deeper knowledge of be? Okay, The hope we talked about earlier uh, in question number two, hope is an expression of absolute expectation. Okay, So the hope that Paul is wanting them to have and they had, the Jews back then, was an absolute expectation that they are saved. We hope we get to heaven. You know, we wish we got a new router for Christmas. Uh, you know, we have these ways we look at hope and wish, but the way they hope and wish for them is kind of the same word, and it's, it's a hybrid of faith in that they absolutely knew that they were going to heaven. They knew that they were saved. Okay, so absolute, that is how absolute expectation is used here. Okay, hope was something that was an absolute. Okay, it, <clears throat> it was going to happen. Um, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Okay, we typically think of the uh, spiritual inheritance as something we receive from God. But here it says that we, his holy people, are his inheritance. What does this tell you about God? I do want to keep uh, moving on, but I do want to see if there's a question about this. That we are his inheritance. Sorry, this was from um, back about knowing him better. And, you know, I love what you were saying about focusing on him every day because that's how it transforms us as opposed to, I think, what Raul was saying, focusing on the deeds, you know, instead of letting them come naturally. But I think one of the things is that the big lie, um, and which influences how we love and treat others, is how who we really believe God is and right. what His law is. So the big lie, the lie that Satan had, is you know he's exacting and arbitrary, and most of the worship all through history was about doing something to appease him. And if we believe in that kind of God. And, you know, sometimes we Adventists let the Sabbath worship or Sabbath, how we keep it, get in the way that way. Um, and then we treat everybody else with that same kind of expectation. And, it, you know, judge not that ye be not judged. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if we view God that way, then we tend to um, do that to everybody we come in contact with. Absolutely, and everything we keep saying, it comes down to this. The more we know God, the less we're going to probably do be judgmental, the less we're going to be haters, if that's what you want to call it, or these other terms that we're coming up with. So it really does come back to our effort in having a relationship with God, and that is what's going to transform us in how we relate to each other and people we don't know. So, um, But going back to this riches, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance, our inheritance is eternal life and incomparable power at the end of time in the second coming. Christ's glorious inheritance is us, and he will receive his inheritance when we are united with him in the second coming. Isn't that something? This seems like a simple sentence, but to me that, that meant so much. Because I know, you know, when I get to heaven, 
okay, uh, my reward is that I'm going to be able, I'm going to be in heaven, I'm going to be with God and all of you guys, and that's what we are living and how we're trying to live our lives to, right? But uh, God's inheritance is us, and that speaks, that speaks volumes if you sit and think about you know, of all the things in this universe. He can have everything. He has everything. It's all his worlds. Everything. And yet he loves us so much. And he's waiting for us to go home because we are his inheritance. And this is what makes him whole. Question. I'm going to go back to the statement of that we are preordained by God to, to love. Because I'm going to ask a question to all of us. Why do we come to church? Do we come to church because we feel there is something to be gained? Or do we come to church because there's something missing? And I think that the fact that God made us to love is that we realize something's missing, something's amiss. I'm trying, we're trying to fix that. Okay, question? We seem to be going in circles. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure where to go from here, but I, <laughs> um, I know how I feel like if I get to heaven and my family isn't there, I think I would feel that way, although I'm told I won't remember things from this earth. So I'm kind of sort of confused on that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I have two daughters. I have eight great-grandchildren. I'd like to see them all in heaven. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure what I'd feel like if they weren't. So um, perhaps that's just a little glimpse of how Christ will feel if some of us aren't there. And I don't know how else to relate I mean, to that. I, and I think that's a question that many of us have and, and, and a comment you know, that goes through my head that we think about. It's a, that's a very good comment. And I think uh, part of uh, something I learned in going through this was that when Christ was raised from the dead, and, and this will just tie into further where we're going here. So when Christ was raised uh, you know, on Sunday morning, uh, he was raised uh, in his human body, okay, but he was also re raised in divine form. Okay? So there, this was a, a, the, the resurrection was a changing of him that now he is in both forms at the same time. Okay? So how I look at that and what I think I extrapolated was when we at the second coming are joined with Christ, okay, it talks about then we will see ourselves and we will see him as he is. So I think there will be a transformation that occurs at that time that's going to change the way we see ourselves and others and what we think about. And that's probably going to fill in the piece that you're trying to answer. Because I know I've always had some of that question, and this kind of helped me a little bit with that. Does that, does that make sense, Bernie? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So let's move on here, because I do want to answer the, the lady's question. Okay, so we're going to read verse 19. In his comparably great power, for us who believe, the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, okay, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, okay? 
So <clears throat> after that, and God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. How does this answer the, the lady's question? Is Christ empty without us or un, un, complete, incomplete? It occurred to me that one of the uh, sets of parables kind of illustrates this and uh, many times we misinterpret the, the parable of the uh, great pearl and uh, the pearl of great price mm -hmm. and the, uh, the parable of the buried treasure and uh, we've often been told we're the ones that need to uh, sell everything in order to by the kingdom and uh, everything that's in it, but uh, someone who came from a, a more uh, original background, a Jewish background, pointed out that the real person in both of these parables is most likely Christ. And it put a thought in my mind that it says he sold everything to buy something and the uh, a common phrase in Christ's day for the Jewish nation was a hidden treasure or a treasure hidden in a field and so he sold everything to buy the Jewish nation but a, uh, a pearl was considered unclean and uh, basically it's indicating that Jesus also sold everything to buy the Gentile nations as well. And it made me think, well, God must have had an amazing, great big garage sale sometime yeah. and sold everything so that he could buy us. And, oh, that's beautiful. And that Jesus put himself, you know, in, in that situation where he gave up everything Okay, to come and be with us because not we needed teaching, yeah, we needed all that, but because he loves us. Because he and obviously God loves us. Christ put himself in a position where he is incomplete with, without us. This is the same as Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. One has to have the other in order to be complete. The head needs the body to move. It cannot move itself from one place to another, just as the body needs the head to govern it and send commands where it needs to go and what it needs to do. So, you know, as a physical therapist, thumbs are great, you know, but they're kind of useless without the head, right? Okay? So this is, this is when we, Christ is incomplete without us. We, we, until we come to the second coming, until we come home to heaven, then Christ will feel complete. So, pardon me? Well, that, that's a question as I'm going to say yes, but the real answer to that is probably another 40 minutes and way beyond my theology. <laughs> but I would imagine yes, because we will come to a point in time where decisions have been made, and I think that even though we will potentially be made into a, 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 things will be unveiled to us and we will see each other and, and things differently and some things we won't remember, I don't know for sure. But um, I think that 
we will come to a position where God and Christ realize, okay, this is the second coming. I'm bringing my children home. And yes, not all of them are coming, but that is not his will to make him. I, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. The question was, is, is, if that is how it is, which it will be, is he going to be empty? Is he still going to be incomplete? Yeah, you know, and, and herein comes back the, the love is a decision. It's kind of starting to sound like marriage encounter, but you know. Uh, but no, I mean, it, goes, it, kind of goes, it kind of goes both ways because we have to have an attitude and, and a persona that, uh, of, of love. And I do believe that innately we are made to love, okay? I do believe that. But I think that it, because we are in a world of sin and, and we are sinners, we are born into sin, then w it is very easy for us to, to slip away from that and become something else. And the only way we can come back to that and the only way that we can achieve that and how I treat you is that as a child, as we're brought up, we're taught and we then learn to invest in this relationship with God. And that by having that being strong and pure and connected, that will determine how I relate to other people. That's, that's the best I can come up with. So, thank you. Ro. See, uh, as a scientist, I often feel good, great, because I'm, uh, I'm able to um, explain how things work. At the same time, I need to remind myself that that capacity is not my own comes from, from God. Um, and we tend to think of our Christian experience as a state of being, mm -hmm. a state of being. I am Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I believe that Jesus led us to think differently, um, to uh, think instead of a state of having. That's what I believe. Jesus wants us to think in a state of having. What do I have in my mind? That's why Paul insisted in the letter to Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians to knowledge, to acquire the knowledge of Jesus. That knowledge changes everything, as Paul says. We will never be like Jesus, mm -mm. Um, but we can have the mind of Jesus. Jesus had many disciples. Twelve of them were very near. But when the difficult moment came at the crucifixion, all of them left. A few days later, 11 came back. Why? Because of the state of having. They had the mind of Jesus. But one of them didn't. He lacked the mind of Jesus and went somewhere. I think that's important to, for us to remember, at least for me. Do I have the mind of Jesus? If I do that, I, I will be able to do, as he said, to move mountains. And that's a good point. And that I think maybe if we, as you say that, that kind of partly answers this question, will God be incomplete without us, uh, without those that don't make it to heaven? You know, he had 12, he winds up with 11. I, I'm sure Jesus was upset and sad and hurt. But he had the ones around him that loved him, and yet somebody else made a different decision. Judas made a different decision. And so that's where you have to move from. 
Well, one more comment. Okay. Um, one of the comments I want to make is, we're bouncing around the issue of, has everyone in this room given their hearts to Christ? John 3.16. If you have done that and you know that you've done that, the Holy Spirit comes in you and leads you, and you'll, you'll be okay not knowing some of those questions because you know he has you in his thoughts all the time. And we learned last weekend that we're engaged to him yeah. because the Holy Spirit has sealed us because we have received Christ as our Lord and Savior. Yes. So we are the bride and he is the groom and that is what completes him. One more. But there's a limitation. God made the worst or biggest experiment and the greatest outreach of love at the very beginning of time when he created us with the freedom of choice. So that doesn't mean that everybody is going to make the choices that are the most appropriate. Nor does it mean that everybody will make a choice to love him. Just like you said, the marriage encounter <laughs> section. <laughs> you can love someone dearly. I did when I was a freshman up at AUC, and the guy finally said, stop following him around like a piggy tail. <laughs> Apparently, the love was not mutual. <laughs> so God has made that experiment, and we have to respect that idea of God. Can we love them? Yes. Can we try to love them into the kingdom? Yes. Do they have the right to make the final decision? Yes. Well, I think we recognize that we are the experiment, but the big thing that we strive for is our relationship with God, and so that, that can govern or set the, the precedent as to how I treat other people. So if I want to start treating people better and different, you know, I don't necessarily just make a decision that I'm going to start being nice to people. The way I do that in an authentic way, okay, is I encourage and, and, and develop my relationship with God and that is what's going to change how I relate to people my my ability to do that is less of a conscious effort of I'm going to try to be nice to Jack today and it's more just how I treat people uh, it's absolutely true what you just said Richard and it's true for all of us isn't it our ability to love people is such a spiritual workout and I just pray for you this week that as you try to love the unlovable people in your path, that God really will give you this supernatural ability to love in the way that he loved you. Now, episode 72 continues this journey through Ephesians. We're gonna go through chapter two, verses one through 10, which really stretches us to view God in the way in which he really is. Many people view God the Father as a God of justice and Jesus as a God of love. And they don't understand when they read scripture about God's rich, abundant mercy, that it's actually talking about God the Father, not just Jesus. And we're going to dive into that in such a powerful way. So I hope you come back for our next episode. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats and the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.